Good morning, Gateway. And for those of you who have children, happy Father's Day. But, you know, all of us have a profoundly good heavenly father, right? Gateway, this is George Kahungu. And George... Good morning. (laughs) What that is. And George is in the United States under difficult circumstances, having come from Burundi and having experienced, I think it's fair to say, the worst, most horrific ethnic crisis in uh, at least the 20th century, and personally experienced some of the sacrifice of that. George had to leave Burundi and seek asylum in the United States, and fortunately for us, has made his way to northern Virginia, and uh, God has positioned him here and has made him part of Gateway Community Church. And George, we're deeply grateful. (laughs) I was expecting you to have something profound to say. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) That's probably because English is George's fifth language. Is that right? Yes. Okay. George, do you have any idea? I didn't tell you this, but do you know how to say, peace of the Lord be with you in Kurungi? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, figure that out and let me know. Cause we'll... Oh, my gosh. How... Let's pick another language. <laughs> How about, is it easier in Swahili? That's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Okay, all of you, t- I'm kidding. Uh, we're going to learn that one Sunday. I'm going to have you come up and teach us to do that in Swahili and we can say it to one another. So you and I had a great conversation this week, and we were talking about your boys. George has two boys who, for complicated political reasons, he has gotten out of the country, and they're now in Rwanda. And they've been trying to immigrate uh, to the U.S. to be with George, and I think he has a lawyer, and in part the State Department is working on that, and it has gotten complicated for reasons that no one understands, Rwanda, instead of just dealing with the U.S., decided that they needed to deal with Burundi, who wants to have nothing to do with George. So they contacted Burundi and asked for the boys' records, which was a mistake. So it has complicated things and slowed things down. It's been a really wonderful but an extremely difficult period in your life. And I know that you have labored over not having your kids here uh, and other things. And, George, you told me an awesome story this week that I want you to share with Gateway. But the first thing I'm going to set you up with is I love this. I was telling you something that's been happening to me, and you said to me, yes, Pastor Ed, I'm learning to say amen, right? Yes. What do you mean? Uh, It means if... Things are not going the way I want. I learn how to say amen. If things going the way I want, also have to say amen. So each way, it's amen. So I learned to live in the life, understanding like I don't have any control over my life. So amen. I'm not gonna stress. I'm gonna just give to him. That's it. So. So you saw something. Was it last week or week before? Some it was kind of. A few weeks ago. ago. Yeah, yeah. months ago. ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm behind. So you saw something that kind of 
God taught you a lesson through this little visual aid. So what happened? Yeah, so it's kind of, I was finished to work, and my lawyer was already contacted me, tell me like that uh, uh, something had been changed. So we're going to have to have a time to talk about when you finish to work. And I said, what is it? So she explained me all the detail about the embassy issues, what's going to happen with my kids. It might take more longer time what I thought. And I was kind of angry because I feel like I'm keeping going back. I never get raised or finish what I'm supposed to be. I've done what I'm supposed to be done. And I went to work, you know, I worked the, at the park. As a, in Leesburg? Uh, yes, yeah. it's, it's, in, it's in Sterling. Okay. Cascade Road, yeah. I can't keep up with so, <laughs> so I went to work, and I said, because I was kind of angry, I said, you know what? I'm going to keep my anger for my job work. So let me go work and finish everything. And I went to the park. By going to the park, I saw these two people. It was a mom and her daughter was doing kind of homework at the park or the pavilion. So the mom having a book and her daughter was kind of concentrated doing the exercise. And the mom was every time keeping looking to what the kid is doing. And I feel like, gosh, this is my message right here. And I feel like it's kind of God. He got the book of our life. Any exercise you're going to do in this life, he got the book of all the answers you're looking for. But the only thing he have to do is keeping looking. Did he do right? So it means he, he care. Sometimes we lose that focus to think, is it, is it God is close to me? Did, did he understand what I have been through? Did he understand my... Oh, yes, he does. He just want you to go through that exercise. Just finish it. Make that effort to do exercise. That's kind of the mom. She had the answer what the kid was doing. That's what she was looking maybe to see if what the books say, that's what she's doing. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to live, amen, to whatever you're doing, whatever you ask of us. This morning we bring our hurt and our confusion and our anger and our joy and our delight and our brokenness and our put-togetherness and our weaknesses, and our strengths, and we lay them at your feet. I ask, Lord, that today you would remind us powerfully, that you'd speak to our hearts, that you would stir us literally to take deeper steps into obedience, clearer picture of what it means, a clearer understanding, but also just the inspiration to say yes, to say amen no matter what the circumstances are today, that we would say, Amen. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, George. So the next time we say that, let's remember, well, let's remember Jesus, but let's remember George as well. We're starting a new series today that will focus on the early life of David. As I said, we're calling this series of conversations Devoted. And we're looking at this, I think, to give you a sense. Acts 13, the author is writing, and he recalls that God said of David that uh, David would be a man after God's own heart. He would be a man whose, whose heart was given to God in perhaps a unique way. So we have much to learn from David.
we're going to learn what, what devotion to God looks like. Now, this is always critical for us to know what it means to be devoted to God, but this is especially critical for us, for us collectively right now at this time in the life of our church. We're going to see how often David seeks God's counsel before he does anything. And then maybe just as importantly, we're going to see the times when he doesn't seek God's counsel and the consequences are disastrous. We're going to get a special bird's eye view through this series of the sovereignty of God. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that sometimes God's sovereignty can look like incredible, coincidental provision and protection. And there are going to be some coincidences that we're going to go over this summer that are mind-blowing coincidences. Sometimes we're going to see that God's sovereignty can look like direct words from God that prove to be life-giving or life-sparing. And sometimes, sometimes God's sovereignty can look like David dodging a spear. And sometimes you and I are called to get out of the way of danger, and God's sovereignty doesn't preclude that that's going to happen. And then finally, when we mess up, God's sovereignty looks like God's purposes still being served. How incredible is that? We're going to be reminded that we live in between times, in what some theologians call the time of already, not yet. So God has broken into our world in a mind-blowing, bone-shattering way. He showed up personally in the form of Jesus. God manifested fully. This is what I look like. This is what I act like. These are my words. And yet, we're not completely on the other side of what we're going to be, what we're ultimately going to be. We still feel angst. We still feel like something's missing, and it is. And God's going to bring all of that to completion, but he hasn't yet. So we live in between the time of God beginning to come and in the, t- the time when he will ultimately fully come. And if you miss everything else today, don't miss this. Obedience is better. Obedience is better. All right, let me give you an historical kind of overview, uh, introduction to this section that we're going to be looking at. And then today, we're going to just spend a lot of time walking through the story. The stories that we're going to be covering this summer are some of the most compelling stories. I can't believe that HBO or Showtime has not done a long miniseries on the life of David. It's really incredible stuff, and you're going to hear some of that this summer. But let's set the context of what was going on uh, in the world and also in the immediate area. But first of all, in 1050, Saul is anointed king of Israel. And notice that word, anointed. That's going to be important a couple of times this summer. The kings of Israel do not conquer their way into kingship. And they don't inherit kingship. This is because, principally, God is their king. And the prophet is their, the man of God is their primary representative. So the kings, the government, is anointed in Israel. And in 1050 B.C., Saul is anointed king. Then in about 1020 B.C., David conquers the Philistines, and we'll get to that later in the summer, and there are other things that happen in between there. And then about 1010 B.C., you and I live way outside in the bus parking lot, but about 1010 B.C., David becomes king 
over Israel. And that's where we're going to end this summer. Then in uh, 971 BC, David dies. Let me give you the cultural context. So in the world, this was the Iron Age. And they call it the Iron Age because somewhere between about 1200 BC and about 900 BC, at different places in the world, depending on where you were in the world, civilizations entered into the time when they could use iron. So they could create a fire in a contained place that was hot enough to forge iron and steel. It changed the way they cook. It changed the way they could do farming. But perhaps most significantly, I started to say most importantly, you can't really call this important, but most significantly, it changed the way they did warfare. So they began to use iron and also other things that happened during the Iron Age as alphabets got more systematized. And so there's more writing. There's more historical records during this period. So just to give you a big picture idea, this was the Vedic period in India and the Indian subcontinent. And the most significant empire in India was the Kuru Kingdom in northern India. They were around from about 1200 B.C., all the way to about 800 B.C. And then in China, you have the Zhu dynasty. And almost during the same time that David was king, by the way, in Israel, the king in China, I never knew this. Some of you have heard this before. Literally, the king in China was King Kong. I kid you not. K, parentheses, A-N-G, King Kong. In Japan, Japan, there were not really any large established kingdoms or even civilizations. Japan was mostly ruled by hunter-gatherers and hunter-gathering tribes. And in America, this is long before the Aztecs and Mayas, but there was a a pre-Mayan civilization, the Olmec civilization. More importantly for our purposes, the immediate context. So just around uh, the ancient Near East, the Hittite Empire had been a huge and significant empire just north of where Israel is. And The Hittite Empire had collapsed in 1185 B.C., so that's way over here. The Egyptian Empire had been weakening for two or three centuries, and at this point, around the time of David, one Egyptologist said that they were ruled, quote, by political fragmentation. The Neo-Assyrian, which would eventually be the Persian Empire, but the Neo-Assyrian Empire was not going to rise for another hundred years So what you have is this very large power vacuum into which God calls Israel and the emergence of Israel as a nation. You you have to wonder how God has arranged the circumstances if he did not have more in mind for his people had the kings of Israel been able to obey God over the long term. But if you know your Old Testament history, you know that they didn't. Okay, that brings us to our passage this morning. And we're going to survey today 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, I want you to march through this with me because most of what we're going to do in our remaining time is read this text. It is an incredibly compelling story, and I'm going to have some comments as we go through it. I want to read 1 Samuel chapter 15. You don't have to stand this morning out of reverence for God's Word. We usually do, but this is such a long passage. I'll have you stand at just one important section. 1 Samuel 15. Samuel, the prophet, who has been sort of essentially the the religious and the political ruler over uh, Israel for half his life, and some of you know the story that Israel called for a king. And so God eventually gave them Saul. 
So Samuel says to Saul, beginning in 1 Samuel 15, let me say one other thing. Chapters 13, 14, and 15 have already chronicled for us how Saul has been departing from God's way and just not listening to God. And this chapter accounts for us and recounts for us the final straw. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. Just establishing the ground rules here. Who we are, you and I, Saul. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. I'll have some comments about that in just a second. But for for now, just know that was God's command. He goes on. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. And such an army would have been a procession. Of course, the Amalekites would have known that they were coming. And uh, an army that large, it's probably the case that they would have brought servants with them and their wives and children with them. So it would have been like a moving city. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, another tribe that lived in and around the same area, he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Pete, go to the map if you would. Good grief, you can't see anything. But you you see the blue, that's the Jordan River Valley, the Dead Sea there at the bottom. And if you look way down at the bottom, Amalekites, that's the region of the Amalekites. If you keep going further south, you get toward Egypt. So Saul has traveled from, Jerusalem is sort of the lower middle of the screen, if any of you can see it. And Saul has traveled down from there, down past Carmel, which will come up in a second here. And here's Carmel, and here's the Amalekite region over here. The, the Kenites were mostly in this area, but also over here somewhat. And both of these were semi-nomadic tribes. So they didn't have established cities so much as they just roamed the area. The Amalekites have appeared already four or five times in our story in the story of Israel's history, and principally when they were making their way out of Egypt up toward the promised land for no reason. The Amalekites don't live in the the territory toward which children of Israel were headed, but the Amalekites attacked them and ambushed them, and they lied and manipulated. And God says at one point of the Amalekites in Exodus 17, God says, I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Well, at this point in Amalekites' history, the chickens have come to roost, so to speak. Comment here about holy war. That term is never used in the Old Testament, but there are some 
prescribed conditions for warfare in the Old Testament. Number one, God himself initiates the conflict, and God ensures the success of the conflict, and these battles become acts of worship. They're complete with singing, there's sacrifice, and various other cultic rituals that go on before and after and during the warfare itself. Israel is always in holy war to disregard the number of troops that are opposing them. Because God is on their side, it doesn't matter. Usually, they are instructed to execute complete slaughter because these were acts of judgment. In fact, the word meaning totally destroy, it appears eight times in 1 Samuel 15. I know this can be confusing to some of you. Why is it that God would do this? The only way that I've been able to make sense of it is to recognize that this is an act of judgment. Because as a people, sometimes our disobedience, our disconnection from God, our, our violation of our relationship with God gets to the point that God's patience runs out. So this is one of the things that you and I have to take away from a, a section like this where God is telling Israel to go completely and utterly destroy a people group. Sometimes God's patience runs out. God is not eternally patient. Okay, let's go on. And I think the next slide brings us back to the same scripture point. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. Listen to this. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions, and I think this is Samuel getting ahead of the conversation. This is subterfuge. This is manipulation. This is one of those kinds of conversations where somebody comes into your life and into your space, and you know it's going to be bad, so you want to get ahead of the conversation, so you're the first one to speak. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, cleaned up the house just like you told me to. Hey, hey, how's it going? We're, we, you know, we're mostly done with everything you said, so we're, we're on it. Yeah, come on in. Hey, welcome. Continues. Samuel said, my favorite verse in the entire Bible, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? (laughs) If I'm blessed and if you've done everything the Lord commands, then what are these animal noises? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the, the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. In other words, first, he blames ships. It was the woman you gave me, God. We've been doing this from the first. Oh, yeah, yeah, the animal noise. The soldiers, the soldiers decided that they would save those, and now he justifies. And besides, they save those so we can sacrifice. Manipulation, blame shift, justification sound like anybody you know? It sounds like me when I'm caught. Stop. Stop, Samuel says. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied, and I would love to know the sense, uh, the spirit in which Saul says, tell me. Is he angry? Is he trying to get back on top of the conversation? Tell me. Or is he 
Tell me, shrinking in fear, or is he super friendly? Tell me, old buddy, old pal. We're, we're still buddies here, aren't we? Tell me, pal. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, hey, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Because in God's mind, partial obedience is the same as disobedience. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. Look, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. You know, the soldiers, they took some sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. Isn't that interesting? Not our God, not my God, the Lord, your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, and let's stand together out of reverence for God's word. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. You might as well be going and bowing before another altar and asking that God to do for you what you want that God to do for you as if that God has any power to do anything for you. You might as well do that if you're going to disobey. They're the same. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. You may be seated. Then Saul said to Samuel, follow this carefully. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I suspect, to what we're about to read here, I suspect if Saul gets this right, this entire period of history might have read differently. Who knows what God would have done? Certainly, God would have positioned himself in his connection with Saul very differently. Perhaps he would have done something different with Israel. I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions because I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Listen, I added the word because there. I don't know why. This is the NIV, New International Version. I don't know why they have left this out. The English Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, most of the English translations put in there a for or a because. There is one in Hebrew. I assume that the NIV has left it out because they think it's assumptional. I've sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions because or for I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. I want to read you what one commentary said about Saul's confession. I think this is a perfect summary. 
His confession is coerced by the prophet bit by bit, and even then it is disingenuous. He acknowledges wrongdoing instead of repudiating it. Let's say that again. He acknowledges wrongdoing instead of repudiating it. Saul regrets his actions because they leave him vulnerable, not because they were self-destructive and offensive to his God. He goes on, his I have sinned is followed by an unfortunate because. So, hint, if you're ever apologizing to your husband or your wife, if you're ever apologizing to a neighbor or a coworker, don't ever say, but, or because, you've just undone your apology. Let me continue. He sinned because he, quote, was afraid of the people, almost implying it was their fault. Our reading of Saul will reveal that he was more concerned with placating Samuel and the people of Israel than he was with seeking forgiveness and restoration from Yahweh. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, not ever wanting to miss a teachable moment, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. Saul replied again, he's making another attempt, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Please, Saul, I've sinned. Okay, I've sinned. But help me look good in front of the people. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul. And Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, after this time of worship, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Samuel is a dude. This is not going to go well for Agag. (laughs) Agag came to him confidently thinking, surely, surely, I've been in the court for a few days. All is copacetic. I just watched Saul manipulate Samuel. I'm going to go do the same thing. But Samuel said, Agag, just like your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. The next Mother's Day is not going to be happy for your mom. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah. This is just a tragic ending. But Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Obedience is better. Obedience is better than money. We need to be reminded of that. We live in northern Virginia. We live in the first, second, or third, depending on what magazine you read, wealthiest county in America. If you live in Fairfax County, you also live in the first, second, or third wealthiest county in America. Obedience is better than money. 
Money is insecure. Diane and I don't know anything about this, but some of you are wealthy enough that you know what it's like to invest in the stock market. You experienced five or six years ago. You saw what happens to your money. Jesus reminds us that money's insecure. Jobs, the way we make our money, jobs can come and go. Many of you know that firsthand. Money cannot be where we find our security. Besides, money cannot buy what is most important to us. If you've lost a love in your life, a deep, profound love, you would give any amount of money to have that person love you again, but it just doesn't work. Money can't buy love. If someone of significance to you has died, you know you would pay anything to get that person back, but money cannot do that for you. If you get bad news from a doctor, how much money would you give to make that bad news go away? Money cannot buy what is most important. God is our security. A relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done is literally the source of all we need. Obedience is better than money. Obedience is better than sex. If you're a 25-year-old guy and you're honest, you're disagreeing with me right now, but I'm telling you that obedience is better than sex. Now, there are tremendous benefits to sex, but they're brief. Maybe for a few moments, sex seems better than obedience, but the consequences of sex can be overwhelming and not in a good way. And I don't just mean, although that includes unwanted pregnancies, sometimes our relationships are not substantial enough to bear up under the weight of having physical relationships. And so it sets something at the foundation of our relationship that should not be there, a weakness, a fracture. That's why God builds parameters around it. God doesn't do that because he's the fun police. God does that because he knows obedience is better than sex. Obedience is better than religion. That's Samuel's main point here. Certainly, Samuel isn't saying that animal sacrifice is a bad thing. Animal sacrifice is very specifically prescribed in the Torah of the Old Testament. And the animal sacrifice prepared God's people for understanding who the Messiah, who God's representative was going to be and what he was going to do. But it's meaningless without obedience. Religion is meaningless without obedience. I want you to think of all the times that you've been to church and it was pointless because you were so wrapped up in some sin, something secret, something that you were hiding from your husband or wife or from friends, or because you were so wrapped up in anger at what happened that morning on the way to church. Church was meaningless for you. Obedience is better than religion. If you miss everything else today, don't miss this. Obedience is better. I think you and I can make an argument that obedience is the main point of everything. Now, there's a point at which Jesus kind of spells out the main point for us. He says, the main point is to love God and love others. But at another place, Jesus tells those that are closest to him, look, if you love me, you'll obey me. And loving God looks like obeying him. 
Parents, I've often said, if you are a parent of little ones, your main job is to teach them obedience. And we don't teach our children obedience because we're embarrassed when they don't obey in the grocery store. We don't teach our children obedience because it's just too much of a hassle trying to keep up with them. We teach our children obedience because if we don't teach our children to obey us, then they will not be able to one day obey themselves when they need to. And they'll never be able to turn their lives over in obedience to God. Obedience is the point. Obedience is better. Obedience is better. Here's what that means for us. Three things. First, in order to obey, we've got to hear. So we first have to hear what God is saying. In order to obey, we have to hear. Now let's also acknowledge that there is an awful lot that we know we need to obey, that we're not putting into place. There are habits in our lives, things that we do in the dark, that we need to do violence to. We need to obey. We need to rid our lives of those things, and we don't. There are attitudes that we're holding on to, resentments and anger. And we're to let those go. We're to forgive. We're to release. And we don't. We manipulate and subterfuge and justify and blame shift. But to obey, we first of all have to hear. We need to learn, you and I, how to hear from God. We're going to see this in David this summer, how often he seeks God's counsel. We're going to observe as we go through this story, there are times when David specifically will ask of the Lord. He's about to do something significant, but first he wants to know what God's counsel is. And so he seeks God's counsel, and we're also going to see the negative side of that. We're going to see times when David does not seek God's counsel. He seeks his own counsel, and the results are devastating. David ends up in shadow land. He ends up in a very murky place, and there are negative consequences for all those around him. I want to recommend some resources for you, and if you want to hear any of these later, email me, and I'll let you know. But summer reading this summer, let me recommend some authors and some resources to you. Hearing God's Voice by Henry Blackaby is an excellent resource. There's also a long 15-week intense study that will help you hear from God by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. Terry Eagle, Terry and Tim had a grandchild this week, by the way, so they're not here today. They're with their son and daughter. Yes, their son and daughter uh, down in Radford. But when Terry comes again, tell her you want your small group to do that this fall. Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. A second resource would be Bill Hybels. He's written two very easy-to-read books, The Power of a Whisper. It talks specifically about hearing from God. And then another one, Too Busy Not to Pray. Make one of these your summer reading. Or let's give two more. Philip Yancey is one of my favorite authors. He's inspiring, and he's very easy to read. He's got a book called Reaching for the Invisible God, which talks very frankly about how hard it is to build a real connection with God when it it so often feels like you're reaching at thin air. And he offers some solutions. And then finally, prayer, experiencing awe and intimacy with God by Tim Keller. 
I encourage you to make one of those your summer read this summer. Because obedience means that we first of all got to hear, and you and I need to be trained in the art of hearing from God. Secondly, speaking of getting into trouble, obedience means that when we get into trouble, we repent wholeheartedly. We stop. We change direction. I suspect that there are several someones here today who are getting into trouble. You're getting into a relationship that you should not be getting into. You're hiding information from your husband or wife. You are pursuing your lust on the Internet. You are manipulating or blame-shifting or subterfuging. I know that's not a verb, but we just made it one. And you need to stop. Now, I know it's not that easy, but it kind of is. Do whatever you must to stop. Build the parameters in your life that you need to build to make sure that you don't do that, that you don't find a way to tell that subtle lie about yourself. Worse, you just allow that subtle lie about yourself that elevates who you are and what you look like. Or you don't work your schedule so that you can pursue your secret sin. Just set the parameters for yourself. Stop. Change direction. Finally, Obedience means we have to say amen. No matter what news you've heard in the last month, no matter what's going on in your life today, no matter where you are with your job or your career or your health, no matter where you are in your relationships, obedience today means saying amen to whatever God is doing and whatever he's asking, even the trials. Obedience means trusting that God knows better that he has a will and a way, and that he's working it out. Let me end. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would stir our hearts and I pray that you will. I pray that you will continue to have this stew, to have this percolate. I pray that you will massage this truth into our hearts and into our lives, that obedience is better. No matter what the alternative is, obedience is better. I also pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage today to obey Whatever the next step is, that we would say yes today. And honestly, Lord, many of us know the next step. We may not know the third step or the fourth step, but we know the next one. I pray that you would help us to say yes. To say yes to the conversation that we need to have. Or to say yes to building the accountability that we need in our lives or to say yes to stepping in with you, or to say yes to letting go of anger and justifying ourselves, making ourselves the victim. I pray, Lord, that today the posture of our heart and our lives would be amen to whatever you're doing. We receive it knowing that you will walk us through it. We're your people, Lord. Hear our prayer.
In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Go in peace, and those of your dads, happy Father's Day.